One of the questions that the book of Revelation is addressing is how the church, the people of God, Jesus' bride, can endure faithfully in a world where our allegiances are constantly challenged. How can Jesus' bride remain faithful to Jesus? Now, I want you to imagine yourself in the first century. You're a first century man or woman in the Roman Empire. You're Marcus. You're Julia. You're living the equivalent of a middle-class life in a sophisticated Roman city of Ephesus. You enjoy the privileges of Roman citizenship. You appreciate the security and the protection that the Roman Empire brings to you. And like everyone else, as a part of a custom, you honor and you worship your household gods. But like those around you also, you participate in the cult of Caesar. Caesar, you understand, is not just a political leader, but Caesar, as he proclaims for himself, and as his messengers proclaim, Caesar is Lord over the empire. Caesar is Savior. Caesar is the one who brings peace. Caesar is the one who brings salvation. And all of this makes perfect sense to you as a Roman citizen because you're enjoying the benefits of all of this. You understand there's no separation of religion and politics. That would have made no sense to you in the first century. The political order through its leaders makes total claims on you But in return for your allegiance, offers you hope, offers you protection, offers you salvation. But one day, you're just going on about your business as a fairly comfortable Roman citizen in Ephesus, and you hear some guy named Paul who starts gathering people around him. And this Paul guy is saying that there's another Lord and Savior And his name is Jesus Christ. You're intrigued because on the face of it, this is a startling claim to be going around saying that there's another Lord and another Savior because everyone knows that Caesar is Lord and Savior. But Paul starts talking about this one who is Lord and Savior and says, this one, strangely, suffered a brutal death, but he was physically raised again from the dead. And it's this one, Paul keeps saying, who offers forgiveness of sins, the removal of guilt, not by requiring a sacrifice, but he himself became a sacrifice. It's this one, Paul says, who, though he came in humility and suffering, who has secured a great victory, and all the rulers and powers will one day submit to him. You start to listen, start going to the meetings, you start to realize this is a great risk, but you find this message very compelling. You find Hope starting to well up in your heart, which you might think what Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit. It all starts to seem credible, compelling. Paul says there were lots of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The evidence seems there, but more than it seeming intellectually credible, there's something emotionally satisfying about this message that is being preached. Many people around you are quietly gathering to worship and to pledge allegiance to King Jesus. But you understand the implications very clearly. If what Christians are saying about Jesus is true, then Jesus requires ultimate allegiance. He is Lord and Savior, and this means Caesar is not. So what do you do? It's risky. It's risky business following Jesus in the first century, pledging your ultimate loyalty and hope to this Lord and Savior. And it's risky business following the Savior in the 21st century also. 
back in the first century, you realize Caesar and Rome are demanding something more than just mere civic participation, good citizenship, and a small measure of patriotism. Caesar is demanding something more. Caesar is demanding your life. To worship Jesus faithfully and to still participate in the cult of Caesar would be like committing an act of infidelity. Now, I want to apologize up front. This sermon is rated PG-13. But as we'll see, it's all in the Bible. Actually, there are parts of the Bible that are rated R, so I'm actually cleaning it up a bit for us here so we can be all proper. But Scripture tells from the Old Testament to right here in the New Testament, Revelation 17, Scripture tells a vivid, racy story about how the people of God, the bride of Yahweh, can easily become unfaithful. She can be seduced. She can be lured away by the attractions of others who seem more appealing, who seem to offer more. And that's what we see in Revelation 17. Here's the main thing to see. The bride gets in bed with the beast. If you want a summary of what's happening in Revelation 17, that's it. The bride gets in bed with the beast. Are you intrigued? Do you want to hear more? Well, I'll tell you more. Um, The bride becomes a harlot, a prostitute, one who is unfaithful. And we're told that this unfaithful bride is about to be judged. So what I want to do is move through this passage. I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Who is this harlot? Why is she about to be judged? And then in the end, ask, what does this mean for us? So who is the harlot? Revelation is a series of four visions. We've been studying Revelation on and off now for several months. John's first vision is on Patmos. He's taken up into heaven. And now in chapter 17, this is the third vision. He's back down on earth, and he's taken out into the wilderness. Revelation is like a wedding service. It begins majestically. The groom and his regal party have processed in, but the tension starts to build. As we wait for the true bride, where is the true bride? But when we come to Revelation chapter 17, we don't have a faithful bride. We don't have a true bride, but we have a false bride. We have a harlot and a prostitute. And the angel tells John that this prostitute will be judged. So who is this harlot? Well, this is talking about actually a city. But what city exactly? What city is this referring to? In the Bible, dress is always significant. And this woman, we're told, was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, and she's holding a chalice. And what's shocking is that this harlot is dressed up not just in luxurious clothing, although that's certainly the point. She's dressed up as a priest. In the Bible, purple and scarlet are colors in the temple. Purple and scarlet are woven into the fabric of the priest in the Old Testament. The breastplate of the high priest is jeweled with gold and precious stones, just like this woman. The priest wears on his head a nameplate that says, holy to the world, but this woman is wearing another nameplate that says, Babylon. It's a parody of a priest. This is a false priest. Where is this harlot? We're told, In the wilderness. John has to go to the wilderness to see the harlot. In Israel's wilderness journey, she worships the golden calf. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you see very quickly after the Lord pledges himself to Israel and Israel pledges 
herself to the Lord. This is like a marriage ceremony. Very quickly, they are lured away out in the wilderness, tested. Their allegiance, their loyalty, their fidelity to the Lord is tested. And famously, they worship this golden calf. And then the warnings start to come to Israel in several places in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament. Don't play the harlot. Don't play the harlot with idols and demons. It's surprising what we have here. A prostitute dressed to mimic a priest out in the wilderness. What John is seeing is a picture of unfaithful Israel. This is just tying into a storyline that's been going on all throughout the Old Testament. The priestly people. Israel is supposed to be a priestly people wedded to God. To be God's priest to the world, to be a light to the nations. But here, once again, in Revelation 17, the people of God have become unfaithful. We have to ask, who is it? Who is it that was the Lord's chosen people to bear witness to the nations? The special people that God wedded himself to, pledged himself to? Well, it's Israel. The theme of the Lord's marital love and covenant for his people, it runs throughout the scriptures. When Israel seeks comfort, pleasure, security away from the Lord, she is playing the harlot. Ezekiel 16, our Old Testament lesson today, it brings all of this into view. Ezekiel 16 is the background for Revelation 17, by the way. The Lord's bride in Ezekiel 16 has become faithless. As we read, she's played the whore. And as this vision comes to Ezekiel, lavish your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. Verse 30 in Ezekiel 16. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. This is the Bible, by the way. I just want to remind ourselves this is all in the Bible. Time and again, Israel looked to the nations, and offered herself up to them as a sacrifice, if you like. Not trusting in Yahweh's protection and provision, not being satisfied with his love and being patient to wait on his leading, but offering herself up to those who would bring something immediate. The great harlot city of Babylon in Revelation chapter 17 is not Rome, It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become Babylon. The harlot city is the priestly city that's become a prostitute. The harlot city was covenantally united, married to the Lord, but now has become unfaithful, once again seeking another husband. So this harlot city is Jerusalem, who is about to be judged. So let's look at why the city is about to be judged. Well, she's played the harlot with the beast. Chapter 17, verse 3, there's this image that runs throughout Revelation 17 of this prostitute riding the back of a beast. That's the image. Let's consider this beast. Who is this beast? As we've already seen in the book of Revelation, there's lots of beasts. But Rome is a bestial power that comes up out of the sea. And to make it even clearer, we're told that this beast is related to the seven mountains, these Most likely are the seven famous hills of Rome. And this beast, strangely we're told, was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction. Now, if you're listening closely, you hear an echo of something else in Revelation that we've already heard a couple of times. The Lord God in his triunity 
has already been called in Revelation the one who is and was and is to come. This beast is a parody of the triune Lord. But importantly, there's a difference. The beast was and is not. It looked like the beast might not make it, might be brought down. But once again, the beast will come back with a vengeance, but there's a trajectory of the beast because the beast is heading for destruction. This beast will not last. As much as this beast wants to be a parody of God, this beast is not eternal. The empire beast of Rome pretended to be the eternal city and had a great run. But all empires, all political orders come to a halt. There's only one empire and only one political order that is for ages upon ages, the one ruled by the one who is and was and is to come. There's only one king of kings, one lord of lords, whose kingdom is forever. And what Revelation is doing on many, many levels, it's giving us a political theology, if you'd like. There's lots of ways we try to understand the political dynamics in our time. Most of it comes from consuming news to try to understand what's happening day in and day out. But much more important here is to understand from a heavenly perspective what Revelation is giving us. And the theme again and again that we have in Revelation is that his kingdom is forever. And this is, on the face of it, sounds kind of simple, but it has tremendous implications for how we think about ourselves in the world, how we think about our participation in the political orders and systems around us. In Revelation, if we dive into it, and if we let it start to read us and examine us, I think Revelation holds out infinite resources for us to understand and know what it means to live faithfully as a people of God in the world, in our current political order. The tensions are not new. The tensions continue. The tensions go all the way back to first century Christians who were seeking to be faithful to Jesus in Rome. And this beast, this beast with its ten horns, this may be an allusion to the ten emperors of Rome, but whatever the case, this beast is about to make war on the lamb, and by implication, those who follow the lamb. But the harlot city, Jerusalem, has already commenced a war on the saints, and thereby the lamb. The harlot city, Jerusalem, we're told, is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. It's interesting, Rome up to this point when Revelation, I think, is being written, had been something of a protector or a bit neutral, only begrudgingly comes in, for example, when Jesus is, is crucified, right? Uh, it, was, it was the Jewish leaders who were putting, putting them up. Rome, is, it starts off as something of a protector, not too concerned with Christians. But with the Emperor Nero, this famously marks a turn. Rome turns violently against Christians, the beast will get drunk on the blood of the saints with the harlot. So here's a picture. The bride has gotten in bed with the beast, and both are drunk with the blood of the saints. They have formed a marital alliance in their opposition to the lamb. The harlot enjoys comfort for a while, sitting comfortably, as it were, on the hills of Rome. But this won't last. The beast will turn on her and destroy her. The beast will, quote, hate the prostitute and make her desolate and naked. By the way, that's how we say naked in the South. It's not naked, it's naked. Spelled N-E-K-K-I-D. Will devour her flesh and burn her with fire. 
that harlot enjoyed a relationship with the beast only for a while, but the beast turns on the harlot in the end. This reminds me of what Winston Churchill said speaking of another beast. Each one hopes that he feeds the crocodile enough, the crocodile will eat him last. All of them hope the storm will pass before their turn comes to be devoured. Then he goes on to say, I fear this is not the case. The harlot enjoys the protection and comforts of the beast for a while, but the beast will in the end devour her. Okay, so what what are we to do with this? What does this have to do with us? I want to suggest a couple of applications to close up. One is an application to the church, and one's an application to us as individuals, as those who are following Christ. And if you are not a Christian, if you're curious about Christianity, about what Christianity might have to offer, I think that there's something here for you as well. So for the church, the people of God, this is almost a warning we have here. The people of God can play the harlot, can form a marital alliance with beasts. This can still happen today. Rome, again, offered Jerusalem and particularly the elite Jewish leaders, the Herods, the kings of the land in Israel, something irresistible. You can enjoy protection and power. When Jesus and his church come along, they are a threat. And the Jewish leaders call upon the beast to crucify Jesus and to persecute his followers. They were willing to get in bed with the Roman Empire because they thought they could preserve their way of life, their power, their peace. We can think of other examples of how this similar dynamic has played out in the church. Most of the Protestant church in Nazi Germany prostituted themselves to the beast of Hitler. Many the famous exceptions, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Confession Church. But that was exceptional. Many in the Russian Orthodox Church hierarchy were complicit with the KGB during the darkest days of communism and in the gulags. Otherwise, Bible-believing churches in the American South cozied up with the political regime and did the bidding of defending race-based slavery, in which many slaves who were Christians were killed. The definition of a beastly empire or regime is one that, in the end, kills Christians. Or think of today, the enormous social, political, cultural pressure to accept, without any qualifications... The sexual libertinism that is enshrined now in our political and social order. To resist even one bit is to be called a bigot. It's to be pushed to the margins. No matter how gracefully and charitably we might do that. Many churches, wanting to make peace with the prevailing cultural norms of our day, have forsaken the teachings of scripture and tradition in order to make peace with the present regime. But it's not just churches who maybe veer towards the left. It's churches on the right, too. Some churches on the right have adopted a blind loyalty to a certain form of politics and political engagement that borders on worship of this state and her leaders. Citizenship is a good thing. The Bible talks about citizenship. Gratitude for our country is a good thing. There is a place for patriotism. I will celebrate the 4th of July this week. But we have to have everything in the right order. We have to understand where our ultimate loyalty is. Are we more worked up? Are we more impassioned 
for honoring Jesus Christ? Or are we more worked up and impassioned for the state? What gets you more jazzed? What gets you more angry? What gets you more impassioned? What inspires you the most? Revelation has challenged us precisely on this level. Our ultimate pledge of allegiance as a church has to be to the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And the church needs to have a prophetic voice to power. And it's very hard to speak prophetically to power if you're in bed with power. And if power owns you. The church always faces the temptation to get in bed with beastly powers of all different sorts. To be lured away from the promise, uh, to, be, to be lured away with promises of power, respectability, privilege. But it will always come at a cost. Unexpected cost. The sexual imagery of harlotry, prostitution, this is spiritual ad- adultery, which is to say it's idolatry. So I want to think about a personal application. Idols. Idols are often good things that become an ultimate thing in our lives. Be political idols, relational idols, vocational idols, sexual idols, financial idols, all sorts of idols out there. And they're always competing for our ultimate allegiance. They're always competing for our hearts. They're always trying to lure us out into the wilderness with them. And they're powerful because they never stop. They keep coming at us. And they're always making absurd, crazy, huge, big promises to us if we'll just come and jump in bed with them. Idols begin by offering great things for what seems to be a small price. But then... Idols are never content. They always ask for more. And they always fail to deliver what they initially promised. Idols eventually reveal themselves for the beast that they actually are. Idols, if not checked, idols are totalitarian regimes that take up residence in our lives, enslave us, and eventually take us over. It can eventually destroy us from within. But there's good news. There's good news for those who are enslaved to beastly powers of idols because this is precisely what Jesus comes to do. He comes to break the power of sin. He comes to break the power of idols. He comes to give us his spirit that frees us from the slavery of idols and sets us free so that we can serve him who actually does deliver on his promises, who over-delivers on his promises. This is the sort of life that Jesus invites us into. One where we are rescued from the power of beastly idols. But Christians, though in principle we have been freed from the power of idols, we often find ourselves being lured away again and again from from Jesus. So are you in a place right now? Have you been lured away from Jesus by an idol? Has an idol grabbed your heart, pulled you out into the wilderness, promised you a lot, But if you're honest right now, you know that that idol is owning you. And you know you've turned your back on Jesus. Revelation has a word for those of us who find ourselves in that place in the wilderness. And that word is to repent. At the beginning of Revelation, it's a message to the churches. We are to repent. If your love has grown cold towards Jesus, repent. Turn back to him. Have you been lured away from Jesus by an idol? Have idols called you away? Turn back to your first love.
the harlot, offers a chalice of blood. It's a vivid imagery. Blood of the martyrs. And the harlot gets drunk with the beasts on this chalice as they're in bed. But the Lord Jesus Christ offers another cup. He offers a cup of martyr blood too. But it's his martyr blood that he shed for us. Do not feast at the table of harlots. Do not feast at the table of beasts. But come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who gives his blood, who gives his life for us so that we can have life in him. The tragedy of this harlot is that she is stripped naked, made desolate and destroyed in the end by the beasts. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he was stripped naked. He was made desolate. And he was crucified by another beast. But in this, the Lord Jesus Christ defeats the beast, even while he lays down his life for the bride, one that he knows will often be lured away from him. But Jesus is always the faithful lover who doesn't stop pursuing, wooing, and calling his bride back. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, you found Israel cast away, but cleansed her, raised her, and built her a glorious nuptial house. So wash us, entice us to the wilderness, where we may delight in an eternal feast of wine with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.